Welcome to the Riverside Project podcast. We are mobilizing Houston to empower families and transform generations. We hope these conversations will give you a greater understanding of the issues facing our community and inspire you to find your place along the river. Today we have Jesse Bohr with us. Jesse is the Chief Operations Officer for DePelchin's Children's Center. In his role as COO, Jesse oversees a diverse array of programs ranging from child abuse prevention to foster care to residential services to adoption. Additionally, Jesse serves um, and facilitates strategic planning efforts, coordinates administrative projects, and helps to support DePelchin's community building efforts. Jesse has spent over 15 years in child welfare in a wider range of roles, including CPS investigator, data analyst, and program evaluator. He served as a consultant for child welfare nonprofits and as an advocate for systems change. Jesse, you have quite a resume. We're grateful that you're here today um, and spending your time with us. It is an honor to be here, Amber. Thank you for having so me. glad, of course. Um, well, as we often start out, tell us a little bit about your journey um, getting into the child welfare space. Start off at the beginning. And you know, actually getting into child welfare was um, an accident. It was okay. not uh, by design, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I started my career uh, in adult probation and did that for a few years. Um, and was moving to Dallas and needed a gig. And one of the people that I worked with um, at adult probation um, recommended that I look at um, CPS, particularly investigations, based on some of the work that I had done for the probation department. Um, interviewed, got hired, fell into it, and really developed a passion uh, for the space. And so like you mentioned, the first six-ish years of my career was spent um, in investigations um, okay. in Dallas County. Um, seeing all of the the hurt, trauma, all of the things that I think our system is, um, at least in theory, designed to to prevent and, and hopefully to heal uh, as well. And then after that, um, finished graduate school and moved down to Austin, uh, where I worked at the state, uh, state headquarters doing data analysis, program evaluation, um, getting to see things from a much more macro perspective. Um, and then from there, like you very eloquently put when you read um, the resume, uh, moved into kind of the advocacy space. And that's where I worked with um, a lot of child welfare nonprofits across mm -hmm. the state, um, getting to see a lot of the diverse range of challenges that they encounter in different areas and the similar challenges that they encounter no matter where they are. Um, and, and then from there, got um, was fortunate enough to um, get connected to DePelchin and have been there for the last almost three years. Okay. Yeah. So many people, unfortunately, often step out of this space. Yeah. It seems like there are, you know, some hidden gems that actually stick here. They get connected, they stick around, and then they find themselves really making a big difference. So oh, I appreciate you. I assume that yeah. was you calling me a gem, which I am grateful for. <laughs> I mean, Thank take you. it if you want. <laughs> I will. I will. That's a great way to start our time together. Yeah. I, I'd love to hear more just about, um, you know, what you've learned in those array of experiences. What what have you learned from going on the CPS side? That's a one specific area in this space that has a very specific viewpoint. And then shifting to more of a statewide organization. Um, and then now in a, a private at DePelchin, um, share a little bit about what you've learned in those different, wearing those different hats and having those different experiences. Yeah, the the perspective of each of those positions is, is very different because mm -hmm. who you're focused on and kind of what you're focused on doing on any given day um, is very, very different. Yeah. But I think one of the things that I have found in all of my positions is the universality of dedication to child and family well-being. And I think that 
perspective gets lost mm -hmm. with all of the challenges that we see in the system, yeah. all of the things that aren't working, all of the things that we want to improve. I think what we all can tend to forget and that I have seen in every role that I've been in is that for, I mean, the overwhelming majority of people that are in this are in this to improve mm -hmm. the lives of children and yeah. families. And I think that no matter if you're coming from the state perspective, if you're coming from an advocacy perspective, if mm -hmm. you're coming from, you know, a, a nonprofit perspective, um, that has been a consistent theme uh, yeah. across the board. You kind of have to zoom out a little bit and see the whole array and be yeah. able to see outside of your current experience um, to actually see the person next to you yeah. and the work that they're doing. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we've definitely seen that, too. Share a little bit with Depelchin, about Depelchin um, and your work there. I um, did not realize until fairly recently that Depelchin has been around for over 100 years. It has yeah. a really interesting history. Yeah. Um, I read a little bit about um, the founder of Depelchin and the how the work actually got started. Can you share a little bit about that story and sure. just the trajectory of the organization? Yeah, Kaziah Payne Depelchin um, is our founder. She was and is an extraordinary yeah. um, person. She took on all of the roles that you would want somebody kind of invest in your community to take on. She was a social worker, she was a nurse, mm -hmm. she was a teacher, she was an advocate. She was also one of those people um, that did not see barriers. She just saw temporary setbacks that she was going to move ahead and move through. Yeah. Um, and she was dedicated to, um, really to the children and families of, of Houston. Um, Unfortunately, her story ended early. She died um, fairly young, but her passion and her commitment to the community um, impacted the lives of so many people that her mission was carried forward mm -hmm. um, by some more of the prominent families that were that were in Houston, and that created the um, kind of foundation for the the establishment of the Depelchin Faith Home. Yeah. Um, and so, like you mentioned, we've been around for uh, now. It's over 130 years, um, and. You know, again, if you kind of read and, and look into Keziah and, and Depelchin, um, you sort of track the, the history of Houston mm -hmm. along with the development of the organization. Um, so Depelchin has continued to evolve to meet the needs of the community. Um, obviously, at the beginning and, and kind of into our current um, our current operations, very much focused on foster care and adoption. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say over the last 20 or so years, um, have really begun to emphasize the prevention component yeah. um, of our work in this space. It is a very, very diverse um, set of programs that we offer. About half of our programming is prevention focused and the other half is in that mm -hmm. foster care and residential space. Um, we're in the schools, we have family resource centers. Um, while we were very much focused and, and are very much focused on, on Houston, um, about 10 or so years ago, um, our operations expanded and we now do work in Central Texas, specifically in Austin and San Antonio, um, both on the prevention side and the foster care side. And then we have an operation up in Lubbock, which is doing uh, foster care work. So uh, it's a been lot. a remarkable journey. Um, and it's one of the things that really drew me to Depelchin and one of the things that I'm most proud of when I get an opportunity mm -hmm. to speak about Depelchin um, is that there's this universal recognition within our organization that we want to prevent child maltreatment wherever possible. And when yeah. not possible, we want to heal um, the maltreatment that has occurred both for the child and the family. And I think our programming reflects that. 
Yeah, I see that. We see that as an organization. Um, I think it it speaks to that river that we talk about all the time. Um, It's not enough to just get kids and families out, but we have to understand why they're there in the first place and start intervening upstream. And so I love that you guys take that holistic approach and that your programs um, and your people reflect that as well. They very much do. Absolutely. Um, Well, one of the questions and one of the things that, of course, is a big um, issue, I wouldn't call it necessarily an issue right now. It's um, just a a big conversation is community-based care. Yeah. I've heard, um, of course, we talk about it all the time just in our conversations and then in lots of different meetings. Um, But we also, I I see people talking about it on like Facebook groups. And it's just kind of like infusing into the community and I'm hearing, you know, different rumors and different misinformation. So can you share a little bit about what is community-based care and what is it intended to do? Um, As people get more familiar, I think it'd be helpful for them to have a a really good understanding and knowledge of it. Yeah, absolutely. First, um, kudos for you to still being engaged, to being able to engage with the world on social media. I am. You're I'm out. out. I'm yeah. Out. I'm, yeah. Not very much, but the little that I do. But it's good um, to know that, that that this topic is actually being discussed. It is. In I more think areas there's, it's where a lot of foster parents um, no convene and yeah. in Facebook groups. And no I think that's it. also where for good and the not as good, yeah. um, the information kind of just starts to swirl. And so um, anytime we can get resources out into that space, we do our best. Good. To do so. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, so community-based care is actually an effort that began in earnest, I would say, maybe 12 or so years ago. Um, At that time, it was known as foster care redesign, um, and it was established to address some of the key problems within child welfare that we we still see today, and I can can talk Mm -hmm. more about those in a second. But community-based care in its current form um, really got started in 2017 with the passage of Senate Bill 11. And the idea behind community-based care and the idea behind foster care redesign is that Texas, as a singular system, is impossible to run out of Austin. That communities really need to take ownership of the child and family well-being system, of prevention programming, of, Mm -hmm. you know, um, family therapy, family-based safety services, and of foster care and adoption. Um, and that a one-size-fits-all approach right. is just not one that's going to work. Yeah. Um, so that's that was kind of the theory behind it. That's the idea behind it. There's a lot more that, that goes into that. But basically, the way it is functioning and has functioned um, is that a single nonprofit would be in charge of the foster mm-hmm. care and adoption services for a geographic right. area, for a region. Um, in industry speak, they call that a catchment. Mm-hmm. Um, so the state is divided into several different, uh, many different catchments. I think it's 14 or 15. Yeah. And uh, a single nonprofit would be tasked with overseeing the service delivery for foster care and adoption mm-hmm. in a given area. Right now, um, the model um, is operational in the Fort Worth area, and that's the longest standing area in which it has been operational. It's been 11 years that that, that group has been operating. Gosh, I can't believe it's been that long. It has been a long time. They've, they have uh, learned a lot of lessons. And, we have and learned a lot through, of lessons We have. Them. We all have, and they've gone through a lot. Yeah. Um, they've really paved an amazing trail for, for the rest of us to, to follow. It's also operational in the uh, Lubbock Amarillo area, Abilene, Wichita Falls, um, the donut of counties surrounding San Antonio, yeah. uh, Tyler, uh, Beaumont, and most recently, most Tyler and Beaumont most recently, and then in the Dallas area as well. And in the last legislative session, um, the state continues to expand this model and provide funding for expansion. So it will be coming to Houston soon. Uh, it will be coming to the counties surrounding Houston. That's another of the mm-hmm. geographic catchment areas. It will also be in El Paso and San Antonio as well. And again, the idea of really infusing 
local control and local engagement into the foster care um, and adoption system. What what are your takeaways kind of up about that? What are the challenges that you foresee? Um, this is a huge shift. And so, of course, there are challenges. Mm-hmm. We have to expect that. What are the opportunities that you see um, from this type of a, a model? Well, from the challenges perspective, I think one of the things that's been really interesting to watch as this has rolled out across the state is that each area has its own unique challenges. Mm-hmm. Some of the challenges you see across the border, of course, related to challenges that are just kind of omnipresent within yeah. social services, right? So funding, staffing, right. Um, you know, it's a human-centered human services industry and change at the at the individual personality level is, you know, very, very difficult. But right. that's across the board. Um, you know, the, the challenges that Lubbock Amarillo faces are very different than the challenges that Dallas right. and Collin County are facing and are going to be very different than the challenges yep. that Houston um, and the other areas face. I think specifically to Houston, as this moves into this area, the major challenge that, that we're going to face is that our system is large. It yep. is uh, the largest in the state. It's very, very complex. There are many, many different um, stakeholders in the system, mm-hmm. all of whom um, are very well-intentioned, most of whom are doing very, very good work, um, but sometimes at cross-purposes. Yeah. And so I think that will be a, a re- so now to transition to the opportunities part of your question, I think that we have a real opportunity here to unite, and I say we in the most global sense possible, to unite mm-hmm. the Harris County community yep. behind a shared vision for what this system could be. And community-based yep. care is not perfect. Um, I don't. If there was a perfect system for serving yeah. vulnerable and abused and neglected children, I think we would have come up with it mm-hmm. by now. This is always going to be sort of an imperfect and yeah. flawed system. But the opportunity we have for true transformation and true systems change, that does not come along mm-hmm. very often. And despite yeah. the fact that it is an imperfect vehicle, community-based care affords us the opportunity to really dive into what could yeah. be a transformational change for the children and families that we that we hope to serve. And that's an incredible opportunity, and it's one that does not come along very often. Yeah, and it, it really does. You know, we've talked about this quite a bit in the in different meetings, but um, the success of this really depends on our, our community's ability Absolutely. to really work together um, and to set aside kind of the things that keep us apart and divide us, but to actually, I think that there are a lot of providers, there's a lot of people who want to see this work really well. Mm -hmm. And that because we have such a giving community and a community that can come around each other in crisis, I think we do have a lot of great opportunity that we want to see maximized. And it it gets back to what I was talking about at the beginning, that the the divisions that we have, the differences of opinion that we have are, are, in my opinion, fairly inconsequential compared to what unites us, which is that we, at the end of the day, we all want healthy children, healthy mm-hmm. families, because that is the bedrock of a thriving community. Yep. And I think if we can you know, reorient and refocus ourselves around that concept, mm-hmm. um, we can really uh, uh, do some wonderful things in, in Harris County. And you know, in the various roles that I've had, um, a lot of them, particularly recently, have been statewide mm-hmm. and state-focused. And one of the things that we used to say at the state um, when we were looking at just the data and the measures is so go Harris, so goes Harris, so goes Texas. Yeah. And I think that you can even take that one step further and so goes Texas, so goes the country when you're yeah. looking at, you know, sort of the, the impact that mm-hmm. um, a high functioning child welfare system could have. And I, that is another thing that I think makes the Harris County opportunity especially unique is that we really could um, 
tip things mm-hmm. um, in a way that would be incredible for child and family well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And going back to that picture again of the river, of course, we talk about it all the time, but it's also recognizing that I'm not the only person doing this work. Right. You know, that there are actually people all along the river in multiple multiple spots along the river who are all doing the same type of work. And so that that aspect alone unifies us. Um, That's right. But gets us toward a common vision and a common vision. And then I think an understanding, yeah. too, that all of those spots along the river are necessary and needed, mm-hmm. um, at least right now. I mean, we, we the, the idea that um, we will prevent you know, through prevention, mm-hmm. our way out of child maltreatment is, it's a wonderful idea, but it's just not realistic. Right. And I think one of the things that we've talked about a lot is having a really strong prevention component to this alongside impactful and effective interventions. Right. And so when you talk about everybody along the river in multiple places, I think the recognition that that, that is what we wanna see um, is a powerful one. Yeah. And it's not even that uh, the, the, there are people right in the water or on the side, but there are actually people behind us. There Absolutely. are foundations that are funding Absolutely. the work. There are people who yeah. are sending in reinforcements. Um, there are training people that are providing all kinds of services and, and supports. Um, and so there's really no limit to what our community can do in this space, whether it, they're a foster parent or not. It's or, so true. And it, it's one of the greatest strengths, I think, of the Harris County community. I, I said this in a um, conversation I was having around this time last year, actually, uh, Harris County uh, is remarkably generous. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, you mentioned the foundations and kind of the philanthropic support. There really is an army behind um, the child and family well-being model that we hope to create and all of those people that are along the river. And yeah. I think making sure that we fully utilize the resources that mm-hmm. are available to us will be critical as well. Yeah. Absolutely. We all have a role in that mm-hmm. um, and to, to maximize the work that's being done and the, the resources that we have. Um, what else would you say if you're talking kind of to Pelchin's vision for if you're looking at the next um, few years and what all of this could look like? What does a community based care child welfare system look like if you had, you know, the ability to just snap your fingers and it yeah. became what you wanted it to be or what it looked like. Can you describe that? I can, but I, I want to caveat it by saying that I don't think that it should be DePelchin's vision and I don't mm-hmm. think it should be my vision. I th- yeah. really think that it should be That's something good. that the community is shared and united behind. Yeah, it's the only way it um, works. Absolutely. And so I think that we've had a lot of, dis- I don't think, we have had a lot of discussions um, with lots of stakeholders um, through town halls, through smaller working group meetings, through one-on-one to, to mm-hmm. kind of dive into just let's forget about all the challenges and everything that we have to right. deal with. But what is it that we really want this to look like? How do we seize this moment, this opportunity for change that we actually yeah. have? And we've kind of as a group, um, and I don't mean a group internal to Depelchen, I mean as a, as a broader community, coalesced around a vision where we have this opportunity to transform the Harris County child welfare system mm-hmm. into a child and family well-being model right. and have one that emphasizes, like I mentioned earlier, prevention alongside intervention that emphasizes the concepts of hope and resilience alongside yeah. being trauma-informed and trauma-aware and then really grounds all of our work in this idea that thriving families, strong families are the units in which mm-hmm. children not only yep. survive, but thrive. Yep. And I think bringing all of that together, again, to, to tie it back to the beginning, into this idea 
that we're not just a child welfare system, but we are a model for building child and family well-being. Right. And so that's not my vision. That's not DePelchin's vision. That's the vision that I that that we have really heard um, from the community building and community engagement work that we're doing. Yeah, and that I think it's easy when we're working in this space to only think about like we we use words like prevention and mm-hmm. we use words like intervention or restoration, but in the day-to-day, what that means is there are families that are struggling. That's right. There are kids who are in difficult circumstances and families who have not had the supports that they've needed to keep their kids um, safe or healthy or thriving um, because sometimes they're not thriving either. And so I, I like that you kind of took it into the reality that what we're talking about when we use words like prevention is caring for families well. And, and, and doing supports. it in a way that is very specific to what that is family-centered, that is person-centered, that Mm -hmm. is not. um, I was in a a presentation uh, yesterday and and the presenter was talking about how the goals of the system are often in direct conflict with the goals of the family and the goals of the person. And I think that's a really powerful concept. And it was one that I was glad to hear because it does, to your point, it does get to this idea of of the blending of prevention and intervention and an understanding that what a family needs along that river and along that continuum is going to look very, very different depending on the family and the child. And in a system, we want it to be kind of this black and white. This is prevention. This is intervention. This is restoration. This is a service. This is a program. This is a model that we build. And sometimes we miss talking to the people that we're actually trying to serve and saying, what is it that you need? How do we help you to access that and help you to promote your own thriving um, in such a way that we're just guiding you towards what you need? Or even this this idea that like, not, not even like the focus on the services that you're talking about, but focusing on categorizing and boxing families into, oh, you need prevention services mm-hmm. or, or you, right. you need tertiary prevention services or you need this or you need that. And, and we lose that they might need a totality of things. They might mm-hmm. need a combination of things, a braiding of things. And um, I think that's something, again, that we heard a lot in the work that we did in trying to kind of understand a, a vision for what what we could transform this this system into. Mm-hmm. And I think at the, at the at its root, when you talk about collaboration and coordinating all of our services together, at the root are relationships. Mm-hmm. And it's people that are working across together and across like yeah. relationships with one another who are doing the work and building those relationships. It sounds, you know, so, you know, soft or whatever you want to call it. it it's, I think it sounds aspirational. It's aspirational. That's what we're going to package it. We're not going right. to package yeah. it as, soft. you know, no, no, no. yeah, exactly. It's aspiring to things is challenging. It's true. And I, I think that those relationships, building those relationships with one another who are doing the work, building those relationships and listening to families, it, it builds a sense of trust yeah. um, that maybe you're doing a different program downstream or upstream, but we're in this together and I can trust you um, to do the work there while I do the work here. And it's going to it's gonna impact um, everyone. And I want to speak to that that trust. It was another word that came up a lot in the, in the discussions that we had. And I think one of the ways that we've started to think through how to build that because that isn't where it needs to be. No, and earned it is. And I think it in order to build that trust and to earn it, we really have to start thinking of ourselves. This this is a personal opinion, I think, as as advocates, not as adversaries, Mm -hmm. where we're advocating for the success of each other's organizations. We're advocating for the success of the clients Mm -hmm. and families that we serve, even if they have done and been involved in terrible things. I I think that moving from that 
advocacy, moving from an adversarial model to an advocacy model is something that we heard a lot as well. Yeah. And I think that that sort of begets the trust that that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. It's the, the commitment to moving toward instead of away. Yeah, exactly. When I like we, that. Yeah. I might steal that. It's from TBRI. So. Oh, okay. Well, so <laughs> you there. stole it first. I stole it okay. first. Um, so if we were to start building the system, um, we start getting the pieces in place, we start really working together, and as community-based care comes, how do you think that we know that we're on the right track? What do you think that that looks like? And is that even possible? Like, do we actually yeah. have any indicators that we know, hey, we are actually moving towards this thing that we really want to see? It's a really community. good question. It's a hard question. So yeah. I'm going to dance around it a little That's bit. That's okay. I want to know your thoughts. Yeah, I, I think that there are measures. There are obviously, um, you know, uh, uh, state developed measures that, that sort of mm -hmm. indicate whether or not community-based care is successful. Right. Um, one of the things that the other um, agencies that are implementing this have done is they've been very, I think, um, astute and, and individualized in developing success measures for their individual areas. Because like mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier, each area is going to be different. Um, and I, again, I think we're early on enough in this process for Houston that we need to define success collectively. Yeah. We need to have a collective understanding of not only what it is that we're moving toward, but how, to your point, how will, how will we know we are moving toward it? And then we need to hold each other accountable collectively toward mm -hmm. moving toward that goal. So I don't, I'm not as completely enamored with the, the, the definite, the current definitions sure. of success that we have, I think, but I, I think another thing that community-based care offers is an opportunity for us to define that, um, for ourselves and, and for our own community. So that's the non-answer answer. Um, the answer answer that I will give you is that I think one of the biggest failures of our current system, and this is not Houston specific, this is not even Texas specific, is the number of families that become reinvolved in right. our system. And I don't necessarily mean the number of families who have a child removed and then that child comes back into foster right. care. I mean, the number of families that are investigated five, six, seven times that yeah. have multiple findings of abuse or neglect that participate in services, but then two, mm -hmm. three, four years later come back and are having to participate in services again. Yeah. I think that the ultimate outcome that we would want to see is the first time you become involved with right. the child and family well-being model that we're building is the last time that you become yep. involved. No matter where along the river you become involved, if that is um, you have your child placed into foster care, the type of support, um, wraparound, yeah. multi-pronged approach that, that we're given is tailored to you in a way that you your child comes back home and that you are never involved in the system ever again. Yeah. And to me, that is the ultimate measure of success. Um, but that's something we need to talk to the community about and make sure that we're united behind that. Um, and then we drive everything that we do yep. toward improving that metric. I remember when we first started uh, the thought of creating an organization in this space. And I remember writing down on a piece of paper, what could it look like to create or to build a system where kids and families are stronger when they came Leave. out of it yeah. than when they came in. Because yeah. um, at the time, and, and even now we, we struggle with that. Um, we do struggle. Um, and But we have all the, again, we have all the resources. It's just they're not accessing them or they're not getting um, fully what they need um, in order I to think, thrive. I think it's that. There, there definitely is an access issue. And, and I, I want to come back to the word access because I yeah. think it's really important. But I do think that if we were giving families what they needed to thrive, 
we wouldn't be seeing the, mm -hmm. the measures that we're seeing. And so we're not, which means right. we need to re-examine what we're providing and how. Right. And I think that, again, as imperfect as it is, I think that community-based care really gives us an opportunity mm -hmm. to ask that question and examine how yeah. we're doing it, why and where and with who. Yeah. Um, the access piece is a really interesting one because I, I think that recently we have gotten away from the idea that a child and family well-being model is a social service mm -hmm. and a social safety net. I think there, there is a sense that this is a system that has become highly invasive and um, not at all uh, interested in improving the lives of children and families. I don't necessarily agree with that, but I do understand why mm -hmm. that kind of thinking has emerged. And I think if we can get back to the idea that this is a social service, this is a safety net for vulnerable yeah. children and families um, that we want them to access when they need it. And mm -hmm. that gets to the idea of the river, right? From prevention yeah. all the way through. Um, that we, Again, we really, we really could um, create a model that, that leaves lasting positive change in the lives of children and families. Yeah, I think it's great. It's something aspirational, as you said yeah. before, to work towards and to actually move um, move us in that direction. Um, we talked a little bit about data in that conversation too, which we get to talk about a whole lot. You lead a, a data work group. Um, we talk about data all the time and what data we need, what data we have at our disposal. Um, how do you feel like, what, or what role do you feel like data has in this space? I think there's ways that we use it that can be not helpful. Mm -hmm. There are ways that we can use it um, to be a, a great tool to help us understand our current circumstances and where we want to go. I think where you just you, answered your own no, question. No, I think it. I did. Yeah, what are question. your thoughts on that? And and where specifically um, do you feel like it's maybe not helpful and when when it is? So I don't, I think that data is unhelpful when it is used as a tool to bludgeon. When mm -hmm. it's, here's what's it, wrong, it you're doing times. wrong. Let's, right. you're, you know, we set a target, you need to serve right. X number and you need to do it in Y way. And so no matter what the family needs or no matter what yeah. the circumstances are, you're just kind of driving toward that specific data outcome. Um, there has been, um, and of course I'm gonna blank on the names of them, but I've read a few books in recent years um, sort of pushing back on the way in which our obsession with data and outputs mm -hmm. um, has really negatively impacted a lot of industries, but social services yeah. specifically. Um, I had a boss uh, many years ago who I love and adore, and she used to say that data can tell you the what, it can't tell you the why, and it's not gonna come up with the how. Right. And to me, that's, that's where I think data proves to be the most useful as telling us what mm -hmm. is happening, or if we're gonna get predictive with our data, which we have opportunities to, what is likely to happen in the future. But it, you're not gonna get to a why yeah. that is going on, and you're certainly not gonna get to a how until you bring in um, a more human element and, mm -hmm. and a less quantitative element in, into that work. Yeah. Um, Texas, a, a, a lot of people are very, have, have expressed frustration with, with sort of the data availability and the data quality um, that we have. Texas it leads mm -hmm. the nation yeah, in child absolutely. welfare data. It is remarkable how much information is put out every month. I mean, mm -hmm. on, on the public website for the Department of Family and Protective Services, um, I would say that 85% of data questions that I get, and since I used to be on the data team, I get a lot of them, mm -hmm. um, I can answer with data that is publicly available. Yep. Um, so in, in that sense, I actually think we're doing a really, really good job with our data. Um, yeah. in understanding 
you know, what the challenges are um, in the system and, and how the system is operating. How we use that to drive change, mm -hmm. how we use that to improve, I think are things that are still lacking. Yeah, we've seen with just helping to shrink the problem down, mm -hmm. I think it is one of the ways that it, it does, mm -hmm. it tends to help with, um, as we engage our community. Mm -hmm. For people who are not involved in child welfare, there are certain data points that can help them to understand mm -hmm. it. Sure, We've seen the zip code level data, being able to go into specific communities and say, hey, we're not talking about the 3,000 kids in foster care, the 2,000 kids in foster care. Right. We're talking about the, you know, 23 right. kids and these digestible. three zip codes. Right. And most people will respond and say, oh, we can do something about that. We can rally our church. We can rally our right. community to come around 23 families and keep them from falling yeah. back down into the water. And so we have seen in that regard, um, but again, the how we do that is not answered by that data right. and the why those families are there. And those are important questions to answer if you're gonna start intervening in them. But if the data, the, the way you describe that, I think is great because what you're doing is you're using that data to drive the discussion. Mm -hmm. And I think in that sense, the data is critical because yeah. you have to have data grounded discussions. Otherwise you're just speculating. Right. And, and to that, and the other thing that I think the data has done that's really wonderful is that it has challenged sort of commonly held assumptions and narratives. Um, there was one in particular, this is a little bit in the weeds, so just start waving if, if this gets um, out of hand. But, it would be awkward. Yeah, it would be, <laughs> but you're welcome to do it. I think it would be very entertaining. Um, the There was this belief that um, this this is not a belief. This is this is born out of the data that there are a lot of children that are not from Houston or the surrounding areas, mm -hmm. but are placed here right. from other areas of the state that don't have foster care capacity needed. And there was this commonly held belief that the overwhelming majority of those children were in group homes, were in residential right. treatment centers, and that was just that was a talking point. Everybody mm -hmm. said it. Everybody knew it. That just was true. Um, we just had some um, data that, that came out of the data committee that the Texas Center for Child and Family Studies put together that that showed that that is not the case, that actually the majority, the, the biggest majority of children that are not from our area but are placed in our area are actually in foster homes. Yep. Um, there are still hundreds that are placed in group residential treatment centers, but there's many more that are placed in foster homes. And that might not seem like a major deal, but it changes the narrative, mm -hmm. it changes the discussion, and it changes the potential solutions yeah. that you could come up with to keep kids in their communities. And that's where I think data becomes incredibly important. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. And speaking of that, can you share just a little bit more detail on why that's such a challenge, like why that specific data point of kids being in the wrong areas, right? If they're actual cases in one area, they may move because of a kinship or a relative placement. Which is good. That's fine. That's great. We are good with yeah. that. But why why does that happen? And then why does that present such a challenge to them getting out of the water and finding stability? I mean, it, it, it happens because areas don't necessarily have the capacity needed mm -hmm. um, in order to serve children in their communities. Um, the example that I'll give um, is in the, because it's the one that's the most stark. So in the Midland Odessa area, for example, mm -hmm. um, over half of the children that are in foster care are not placed in, it's not that they're not placed in their county or not placed within 50 right. miles. They're not even placed in the region. They're not, yeah. they lose all that connection um, to their home community, to their schools, to the things that yeah. they know and that familiarity. And that kind of answers the second question, which is why yeah. it becomes such a major issue. Um, you know, it is inherently traumatic for a child to be removed from their home, uh, no matter how horrible um, the conditions were in that home. It just is a, it is a, that in and of mm -hmm. itself is a trauma. Um, and and I, 
we'll caveat that by saying children that are abused and neglected, if there are no other viable options, should be placed in, yeah. in foster care. That's something I, I believe. Um, but it is it is crucial and, and just incredibly important that we do everything we can to maintain mm -hmm. that child's connections to their family, to the community, right. to their home, to their school. And when you have to um, place a child far outside of that home right. and community um, because you don't necessarily have the capacity in your own community, um, it really sets back um, that healing and that well-being that I think yeah. we're all striving toward. Yeah, absolutely. And then going back to the community-based care conversation, that's a big part of why if we can take ownership of our own individual communities and really build that type of capacity in our own regions, we help um, we, we help to figure out that um, kind of cross data point that's not really working. It is, and it's something we're gonna have to figure out. I mean, the, the, the ultimate end goal and theory behind community-based care is that local communities care for their right. children and families. Um, you know, in some areas that are more resource rich, that theory is one that could be implemented and others that are not, it's, it's one that's going to be very, very challenging. Yeah. Um, and so to your point, figuring that out and having those discussions, even across regions is going to be critical to the implementation of community-based care. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as we're kind of starting to wrap up our time, I, um, I'm just I getting warmed up. <laughs> well, that's all my questions. Really. Oh, all right. All right. Um, what, what are you and and the folks at Depelgen? What are you guys celebrating right now? What is a story of kind of hope um, or just something that you you're seeing in even just in the system? It doesn't have to be within Depelgen specifically, but what is something that you're seeing that you're just really encouraged by? We've talked a lot about the the issues, the challenges, and some opportunities, but what are the things that you're most encouraged by right now? So I'll give you three. Okay. I know because you didn't even prepare me I for did this not. question, this is, and this, this is was out yeah. of field. Not that the I was type A personality is. No, that's right not doing well right no, now. No, no. Um, there's three. One, one I'll, I'll keep very um, Depelchin specific. Um, so the last couple of days, we've had a, a leadership summit of our operations and program team. And every time we do one of these, I leave exhausted but energized. Mm -hmm. And that group of people and, and the people that work with them in serving children and families, the thousands of children and families that Depelchin serves, I'm just bowled over by what they do, how they do it, yeah. and the passion they bring to that work. And while that is a very Depelchin specific example, it is not unique to Depelchin. That is, mm -hmm. again, something that we see yeah. um, across the uh, across our space. Yeah. Um, but it just happened to really strike home this week because I was in that meeting with our leadership team. Wonderful group of people. That's the great. second um, that that has really given me a lot of hope, energy optimism moving as as Houston moves into this community-based care model. You know, we've done a lot of, of um, talking to the community, a lot of, of development work, engagement work at the small group level, at the town hall level, at the one-on-one mm -hmm. -on -one level. There is a palpable energy and sense that we can do things differently and we can do things better. And that's from everyone. Yep. That's from the state. That's from you know, Harris County, that's from yeah. uh, nonprofits, that's from individuals, that's from groups. And that is really exciting. I think that really there is. are other areas of the country and of the state that have, you know, thought about this model, moved into this model. And there's been a, a lot of fear, a lot of reticence, a lot of opposition. And I'm not saying that there's not some of that here too, but more what I'm seeing is 
roll up the sleeves, engage, just eager for this to happen so that we can really dive into this, you know, yeah. very difficult challenge that awaits us uh, head first. And then to that end, um, you know, not just with the with the you know people in our in our space, but you keyed in on this earlier, the generosity and engagement of the philanthropic community mm -hmm. in the child maltreatment space. Yeah, I, I haven't really seen anything like it. Um, there are other communities in Texas that are extraordinarily generous and extraordinarily engaged, but the breadth and depth of it here um, feels different. Yeah, um, and that is a cause for celebration. I think that's a cause for a lot of excitement and yeah. optimism. That's great, and we definitely feel that, see that um, from our perspective as well. Yeah. Okay, so as we finish up our last five minutes, we go. We typically go to last five questions that are a little bit more personal, a little bit more succinct, and just kind of rapid fire. Right. Don't ramble. Got it. Yes. So number one, you actually mentioned to me today that um, little Joan is turning two. Yeah, my daughter turned two today. So fairly new parent. You're yeah. not a brand new parent anymore, no. but you're a new parent. What has been the most surprising thing about becoming a parent? So I, I'm going to answer that. I promise I won't ramble. A very concise or answer. Cry. You can't cry. I either. won't cry. No, I'm. I might later, but not right now. Um, in the very unlikely event that she ever listens to this, um, happy birthday, Joni Baloney, first. Um, I, there were two adages I was familiar with. You know, the days are long, but the years fly by. Right. And then just the, the new gear of love that you kind of experience. But actually getting to see those two things play out in real time um, and feeling that in a very visceral way has been really incredible. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, okay. What's the most impactful book that you've read this year? And we we share books fairly often. We back do. And forth, so yeah. Although one of the ones you gave me, I did giant eye roll you. At. That's true. It but was you fine. It was probably great. I read it. I did read it. What's the most impactful book? Um, Empire of Pain: A Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty, by an author named Patrick Radden Keefe. This is a book on the history of more or less the creation of the opioid crisis in America with the family that was not only responsible for the Oxycontin uh, crisis, but also um, the Valium crisis in, in the 60s and 70s, 50s, 60s and 70s. Very interesting. Um, very interesting book, very impactful book. I also wanna throw out a few movie recommendations Great. if I Take can, just three. Um, highly recommend Barbie. Probably one of the top three movies I saw all year. Sir, if you haven't seen it, okay, amazing. You will cry. Okay, calling it right I've now. I've not seen it yet. Um, there's a movie on Netflix called They Clone Tyrone, which I would also highly recommend. Okay. Amazing title, equally uh, wonderful movie. It does it rhyme. It does. And then there was a movie that came out in the '90s that I saw for the first time uh, called Fearless, starring Jeff Bridges and Rosie Perez. That did make me cry, and I would highly recommend that one as well. Okay, so, I one book, read three movies. Or seen any of those? Okay, so there you go. I have a list. Yeah. Um, number three, what is something that people are generally surprised to find out about Jesse Boer? I am really into MMA. Okay. Watching it, doing it in my free time. I fight in my free time. I did not know that. Um, yeah, it is genuinely. Uh, usually a surprising okay. factor. Most people know about the running, but not the... So don't get in a fight with Jesse. Not, I mean, you can. It's just not going to go well for, I, go for well either for of us. Yeah, it won't go Jessie. well for either of us. Yeah. Number four, what is currently your favorite thing to listen to in the car? Are you a audiobooks. silent? Audiobooks. Yeah, okay. all audiobooks. Um, although I did share with you, uh, this is not my favorite thing, but on a, in order to keep the peace in the car, I did have to listen to Baby Shark for 90 straight minutes. And um, that was a real test of God. my mental fortitude. You're still here to it's, tell it's about shocking. it. It's shocking. 
it is shocking. We're all still here, that's, which is <laughs> shocking. Uh, but audiobooks is my preferred. Okay. Yeah. Last thing, what are you most excited about in 2024? Mm. Coming up on a new year. 2024 is going to be a, a really uh, impactful year when it comes to change for the, the, the industry that I've devoted the vast majority yeah. of my career to. I am so excited and uh, energized about being able to play even a small role um, in what that change and what that uh, improvement could look like. So I think that's the thing that I'm the most kind of engaged around for 2024. Awesome. Well, we're excited about that too. Yeah. Uh, we're grateful that you came to spend some time with us thank you and for you having to me. share a little bit about the work that you do. So thank you for what you do every day. Thank you. It was a pleasure. To those listening, we hope these conversations have inspired you to find your place along the river. And we welcome you to join us in bringing hope and renewal to the city of Houston. If you'd like more information on how to get involved, please visit riversideproject.org and submit a contact form. We'll see you next time.